Welcome to episode 138 of Auto Off Topic. I'm Brad, and... I'm Andrew. What's, What's going up? on, Andrew? Whoop, 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 who, who? Professional opening, as always. Yeah, I'll just step right on you. Bang on, sir. Cool. What's new and exciting in the world of Auto Off Topic today, Andrew? Not much. We're uh, enjoying some beers left over from our last guest, Yes, he brought us a sample pack of Trilliums, mm-hmm. so now we are enjoying a 5.2% rice lager called Just Add Noodles. Yep. So a big thank you to Paul Werta for bringing beer last time because we're enjoying it this time and probably next episode as well. So mm-hmm. support your local podcast by giving them beer. So because we had a guest on the last episode, we didn't go over uh, stuff we did over the previous weekend. Yes, and we kind of glossed over things we had put pictures of on our page. Yeah, some project updates. So we're going to run those down now. And we also have some listener questions we'll get to. So we visited the Crawford Auto, Avi- Auto Aviation Museum in Cleveland. Yes, where you had already been once for the exhibit, but yep. I had not seen yet. Yep, because so, we wanted Brad to check out the Radwood exhibit and the whole museum. Because the whole museum is awesome. It's wild. Yeah. I had a little bit of a double reason for going out, quote unquote, west, west of the northeast. Yeah. Um, Because I was also picking up some parts that were along the way. The parts were about five hours away, and Ohio is about 10 hours away. So I was like, why don't I just drive to Ohio and stop halfway there to get the parts? It was like dead in the middle. So, yep. So, yeah, it was like five hours to where I got the parts outside of Syracuse, and then another five hours to Cleveland. So, Got some parts for the Starion. Unimportant part of the update, but I have them now. Moving on. Crawford Auto Aviation Museum mm-hmm. with the Cleveland Goes Rad exhibit. Yep. Was really neat. Because it getting, it's getting ready to end soon. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think in June. Um, but we also had more time, or even I had more time, to go through the rest of the cars they have there. Yeah. Which they have a really, really good collection of cars. Yeah, they do. It's not a huge, huge, huge museum, but it's good sized, and they probably have... 100 cars in there, maybe? 50? It seems about right, yeah. Somewhere between 50 and 100. I'm not exactly sure what they are. Um, They have a large collection of built-in-Ohio cars. Yeah. Which is really neat because there's brands you've never heard of (laughs) that were built in Ohio, like a Jordan. Yeah. And what was the the car upstairs that we liked at the very end? The Jordan was? No, there was the Jordan was downstairs. And then upstairs, those two cars were parked side by side. They looked kind of like 29 Fords. Was it a Cleveland? Yeah, you're right. It was called a Cleveland. Yeah. That was the brand name of the car. Yeah. It was really like proper good looking 20s car. Like yeah. really nice proportions. I could picture if they were more common, picture one done up like a 29 Ford hot rod kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. It was a really neat looking car. And there was, uh, I'd never seen, it was the oldest car I've ever seen, ever. Oh yeah, that French thing. Yeah, it was a French car that was more like a carriage. Yeah, it was clearly the very beginning of the automobile yeah. I took a picture of the tag in front of it so I could remember what it was it called. It was built in 1897, and it was unrestored. Yes. Like, completely original. Yeah. Which is amazing to think about. I mean, it's mostly wood, not sheet metal, so there's no rust to, ish- to deal with, but there is wood rot to deal with, obviously. Yeah, they're more like uh, a carriage at that point with an engine, because it was, like, super tall, super narrow, wooden wheels, so wooden it's brakes. 1897 Panhard Lavasseur. Yeah. Which is, like, 1897. That's to think about how mind blowing that must have been to see. Yeah. Like, what was that? A runaway carriage? There's no horse attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> what do people think? Yeah, it has a. It still has a tiller that's kind of like in the middle of the cockpit area, and that's like there's no steering wheel. And then they had them arranged the in the cars. They kind of go in order. 
So like that's the oldest one, and then they go up through the 1900s, different models. Yeah, next to that, there was like a 1901 Curve Dash Oldsmobile, mm-hmm. which is one of the first known, well-known American cars, um, which actually, I remember, well, I don't remember because I wasn't around in the 50s, but I remember reading about that in the 50s and 60s, people were so interested in them because they were like the first real, you know, mass-produced American car that they made a kit car version yeah. of the 1903 Curve Dash Oldsmobile. So this is the first time I'd seen a real not reproduction one. Yeah. So it was really cool to see Super. an actual. Yeah. And then just like um, a big big Model A Ford. No, it's not a Model A Ford. Some, it was some giant Ford. Model T Ford. No, the no. big red one. It would have been a Model A then. Was it a Model yeah, A? Yeah, it was an early Model A. Mo- like a long wheelbase? Yep, like a touring, a touring yeah. something. And the... Uh, I don't want to go through every car in the collection, but the other thing that stood out was it was a teal paint-to-sample 300 SL mm-hmm. with a brown leather interior. Yep, it was a gorgeous combination. Yeah, it it sounds weird when we're saying it, like teal and brown, but just no, it's just the way it works. It's like a it's like a minty green. I'll almost almost Arizona iced tea can. Yeah, not quite. Kind of along those lines, like Tiffany blue almost. Yeah, and, and then, a little bit more in the. Green side of that. And then what was the Ferrari? Uh, was that a California? Uh, 275. Basically yeah. coach-built Ferrari. Yeah. And that was like a, a Durban maroon color. Yes, Durban. Yeah. And then, uh, shoot. So it was a 1907 Model Model K Ford. Okay. So it wasn't a T or an A. What, um, what was that car... Darn it. What was the one that was all completely unrestored but drove around the world? Like it left the factory in Detroit and then drove. So that was one of my favorite cars. That yeah. was the 1911 Hup Mobile. Hup Mobile, right. Yep. I think they did something like 48,000 miles. It, they went around the world in like 19, 1912 or something. 1911, they left. Yeah. No, uh, sorry, November 19th of 2000. Uh, not 2000. Yeah. <laughs> November 19th of 1910, they left the factory. Yeah. And they returned 15 months later. And had done 48,600 miles in 26 countries. Which is insane. With just two people. Yeah. Um, an open car. In 1911, yeah. there's no infrastructure for fueling. Yeah. So you had to carry lots of spare fuel and re- refill up every time you can get fuel. Yeah. Um, there was a story. There were a storyboard with the car. And there was a story about how they broke an axle when they were in Japan. Drive shaft. A drive sh- I thought it was an axle. I think it was a drive shaft. Well, let's see. Cause Do, I'm pretty sure it was a drive shaft, but they had to forge their own drive shaft or axle in, in Japan. In Japan, yeah, they had to go to like an iron forging like company and just remake a new one. Yeah, which is amazing to even consider that fact. Yeah, and it had all the it's completely unrestored and has all like the frequently on roads that were non-existent in Japan. They broke a rear axle, okay, and forged a new one in a pottery shop. Okay. Yeah. And then all the stickers on it too that you'd see on like old fashioned luggage. Yes. Like all of like the travel stickers. Travel stickers. It was like the world's first sticker bombed car. Yeah. They were completely covering like, the backs of the seats and the sides of the frame rail. Yeah, they're all faded and, out now, but And it was really neat because they had as they completed different legs of the journey, they'd hand paint different things on the car of where they were and what they did and the mileage that they had. So it was a really neat car. And it's also all on original all original unrestored car. Yeah. So that's a really neat car to see. Um, then there were two more of my favorites in the museum. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the 1966 AMX, which is 
pre-AMX production. It was actually the prototype car from the Dick Teague design team. Right. Um, it was like square headlights and almost like a rumble seat in the trunk lit area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it pretty was wild. a really neat looking car. It was one of the first fiberglass cars, I think? Uh, no. I don't know what you're talking about. I, th- I thought that's what you told me. No, 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 no. Not, not that car. That car was a, wasn't fiberglass. It was a steel car. That might have been like a clay buck of a car. It wasn't a real running car. Um, there was a different car that was an early fiberglass car. I thought for some reason it had to do with the fact that it was made out of fiberglass or something. Not that one. But that's okay. Hmm. We were over at the garage, which we'll get to later, and they had the um, the Austin that was fiberglass. Hmm. We were talking about that car. The one's going to the Corvette Museum. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Um, yeah. Hmm. All right. Anyway, so that car was really neat. Um, and then I think the standouts of their collection... Um, are the two, or actually they have three stainless steel Fords, um, which were made by a stainless steel company uh, in order to promote the uses of their stainless steel product and how they could form it and shape it into pretty much anything you needed to be shaped into. It was uh, the Allegheny, Allegheny, Ludlum, Allegheny Ludlum Steel Corporation. They did one every few years. That's... I see you looking at a book with a picture yeah, of fiberglass. Yeah, no, I was trying to figure out what it was. Yeah. Hmm. I think it was, uh, yeah, something with... Because um, that was 1966. The Corvette mm-hmm. came out in fiberglass in 53, so it definitely wasn't anything to do with the first. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, hmm. anyway. Yeah, I'll have to... I know it's in here for some reason. Make a correct correction in the next episode. We'll figure it out. It was, there might be something to do with the fiberglass in the car. I don't know. The, the production AMXs were steel. They weren't fiberglass. This may have been a glass prototype, but again, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. So anyway, the Allegheny Steel cars, they had a 36 Ford, and they had a 65 Lincoln that was there. And they also have a 60 Thunderbird that's in the process of being recommissioned. But those are cool because they're giant stainless steel cars, and they're unpainted like a DeLorean. And all the body panels are still there, but the... Like, some of the drivetrains would... Yeah, so apparently they built these, like, not just one-offs. They built a bunch of them, and they would give them to the salesman for the company. Yeah. So they could drive around with their stainless steel cars and show them off to potential clients. Um, And there are stories of one of the salesmen was driving his stainless steel 36 Ford, and the floorboard fell out of the car. (laughs) Because the floorboards were not stainless steel. They were still made out of regular stamp steel, like most cars of the era. So that was kind of a funny little story about that. But, yeah, it's a cool museum, a lot of good stuff. Um, they have DeLorean number one, yeah, which is neat. Uh, I'm not a big DeLorean guy, but DeLorean number one is always, always cool. Mm-hmm. And then if you're in the Cleveland area in the next month, the Radwood exhibit upstairs is worth looking at as well. Mm-hmm. So some Rad-era cars and some – they have a lot of uh, Rad-era clothing, and they yeah. even have some modified in period cars. Like they have that 71 Colt upstairs that's – was clearly built in like 1986 mm-hmm. and is a very of the period pro street yeah. big block Chevy car. Very cool car. Yeah, very cool car. Very cool exam. Exam. Museum. Yep. Ooh. It's middle of the day recording, Andrew. I don't know if I can oh, use yeah. it here. Really throwing you off. So we got to um, go to uh, visit uh, our friend Myron. Our friend Myron. Yeah. Who owns a um, eclectic collection of vehicles. Yes. He has a lot of weird one-offs and a lot of weird cars that are kind of unloved by the general yeah. world population. But he's very kind enough to share them with the people that appreciate them. Right. He enjoys sharing them. Yes. Which is super cool. And he invited us out to drive 
Is it a Colt Gallant GTO or just a Gallant GTO? It is a Colt Gallant GTO. MR. MR. Yeah, that's the important designation with this one. Which makes it super, super rare. And do I have that right in the notes, the engine? Uh, hold on, i go back to the notes. It's a 4G60. Is it 4G62? No, you got me all screwed up now. Is it 4GB62 or whatever? No, hold on. It's a Saturn engine. Okay. Not like the brand, like the Saturn family of Mitsubishi engines. Yep. Um, 4G. See. The important part is that. Now you have me questioning myself. The head on this engine. The twin cam head. Is a twin cam head, which was not a common thing for Mitsubishi to build until the 4G63. Almost everything else has been single cam. I want to say 4G32. That sounds about right. Yeah, 4G32. See, you yep. put 4G62 on there, and it blew my brain, and I couldn't remember what I was thinking about. Yep. Uh, dual carbs, dual Solexes, I think. We figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a five-speed, which is cool. Um, that's pretty... A five-speed is like today having a six-speed in a car. Like, For sure. It was pretty wild. It's decently roomy inside. Uh, Good-sized pedal box. It is right-hand drive only, because they were only sold in Japan. And there are what, less than 100 of these cars existing today? So the GTO itself, they figure there's probably less than 500 total left in the in the, in the world. So that includes all models across all years. Mm-hmm. The GTO MR, I'm yeah. not sure how many there are of. Maybe 10. Yeah, there's <laughs> there not a lot. very many. There were only 800 made when they were new. Yeah. So there aren't very many left now. Which stood for Motorsport Grand- and Rally? Yes, Motorsport and Rally. Yeah, yeah. GTO was Gran Turismo. Omnigato, or Omnigato, depending on what part of the world you were in. And then MR was Motorsport and Rally. Because mm-hmm. it was meant to be a almost like a homologation car for Rally. Yeah, not not Mitsubishi Racing. No. It's Motorsport and Rally. And that's the sa- it's the same badge that they've brought back for the Evo. 4G32. Yeah. I was correct. Had a red checked interior. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, it was that seventies like style plastic with like the mm-hmm. wood grain. It was it was very much like the Colts that I own. Yeah, just turned up a notch. Yeah, and, so and it was it was a familiar place, but not really cool analog gauges like like chronograph yep. style full, gauges. Full full set of gauges, yeah, which is something my Colts don't have. <laughs> now I've never driven a two thousand two. I imagine it'd be kind of on par with one. Probably. Yeah, I mean that whole generation of cars: the the Colts, the Lancers, the GTO. The 2002, the 510, the Corollas, they all have that small Ford Escorts. I call them like a sporting coupe, yeah. not like a sports car. They're like a sports I, coupe. I, I would say it's more on par with like the Ford Escorts of the era, um, the Toyota Corollas of the era, because it's the same solid rear axle, leaf spring rear, right. whereas the uh, 510 or BMW 2002 is going to have the independent um, yeah. all-around suspension. And they're like a three-box sedan, where these are like coupes. So yeah, well, the... The basic Colt is a three-box sedan, and then the Colt Gallant GTO is a fastback version of. Mm-hmm. So it's the same underpinnings and the same, you know, basic design with a fastback added to it. Kind of like how a '65 Mustang was available in, or '66, whatever year they did the fastbacks was available to notchback, which is a three-box coupe, and then a fastback. And the designer whose name is escaping me studied at the design center in California, in, in L.A. And it makes sense when you see this car. I said it was like a three-quarter scale 
version of like a Boss 302. Mm-hmm. Like it's got definitely American muscle car cues to it, but it's like almost proportioned. It's shrunk down, but it's proportioned very well. And the dual round headlights and the fender mirrors. It doesn't look like a tiny car. No. Until you see it parked next to it. No. One. But when we, we got to drive it around the block, which was super cool. Yeah, it was really neat. I'd never driven right-hand drive before. Wasn't as weird as I thought it would be. Like, once you just get used to the fact that the, uh, you know, first gear is all the way to the left in a way. Yeah, the shift pattern's the same. Just doing it with your opposite hand. Yeah, but that doesn't feel weird to me because none of the pedals change. Right. You're just sitting in the wrong part of the car. Yeah. The weird part of it is you have to maintain yourself on the right-hand side of the road. It's very easy to wander left. You probably didn't notice it as much because we drove kind of around a very rural block where there were no lines and no other cars. Yeah. Um, but my first experience driving a right-hand drive, I drove, you know, a thousand miles from Canada back to Mass. And it was it was very hard to keep it in the lane because you always feel like you're in a different place in the car <laughs> than you really are. Yeah. But and, and I noticed when I was driving that car that, like, I turned to look because you were recording as we're driving the car, I turned to look at the camera for a second, and I look back, and I'd be yeah. Like, you drifted pretty far over, drift pretty far over the left side of the road. I didn't notice that much, but um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool, and um, I totally be okay with driving right hand drive. Yeah, it's and, only annoying when you got to you know go to a drive through, but just yeah. get out of the car and yeah. go inside, you lazy bum. <laughs> yeah, which I do anyways. <laughs> right. Uh, there's actually one in. There's a really lame slow car chase in. Uh, the very last Godzilla movie of the, the 70s. original Godzilla movies? Yeah. Uh, it's called The Terror of Mecha Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's a blue one. I don't know if it's an MR, but it's definitely a, a GTO. Yeah, I got a GTO. Uh, and it's like in there for like a second. And it was funny because we spotted it because we go to this ramen restaurant a couple towns over and they'll play just old kung fu movies or whatever, mm-hmm. like just on silent up on the wall while you're eating. And I sat there. I was like, whoa, look at that. And you were facing the other way. I don't know if you even saw I it, turned around and caught the corner of it. Yeah, yeah. It was funny. It was chasing some like big American car or something, yeah. I think. But what did you think about it? Driving the car? Yeah. I mean, it was like, it doesn't get any better for me. That's my dream car. Yeah. I'd say it's like that, a Tommy Mackin edition Evo 6, mm-hmm. and uh, Piero Evo is probably the only other two things I want to drive out of Mitsubishi's lineup. Yeah. And those are much easier to get your hands on because they're more common. Not that they're common, but they're yeah. more common than a car that there's not very many of left. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's my mission to own a Galant GTO at some point in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't need to be a MR. I'd love it to be an MR. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'd almost rather it not be an MR so I don't feel bad about like changing the wheels and making it a little personalized. But if I found the right MR... And it had an extra forty grand to spend on one. This one had like Panda Sports on it or that banana spokes. It had what knobbies. What knobbies? They're what knobbies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, little fourteen inch what knobbies. They looked great. They looked perfect. They were like nice and narrow. It was an early MR, so the MRs don't have the bolt on flares the later GSRs have. Oh. So the later cars are a little more aggressive looking, um, but they lack the twin cam. They have a two liter um, G fifty two B. So they do change to a. Um, Astron engine later mm-hmm. on. So. Yeah, and this is, uh, it's, uh, there's a picture of it on our Instagram, and it's like bright orange, black mm-hmm. stripe, very reminiscent of like a Boss Mustang. 
Yeah, especially with the black stripe and the color and the fastback. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think somebody in some post I was looking at it joked that instead of a Boss 302, this is a Boss 102. Right. <laughs> Which I yeah. thought was kind of funny. Yeah, it's got the little quarter vents. Yeah, it's a really neat looking car. It's the kind of car that you'd show up at your local cruise night car show and even the grumpy old men that just say, get those Japanese cars out of here, wouldn't look at it and go get that thing out of here. They'd probably I know. look at it first. Man, if they, if only they had been able to bring that stuff over at yeah. the time. Yeah, that would have been a much better foothold in this country if mm. they brought cool stuff like that. Yeah. Because they looked good. They did. Yeah. And BMW had no problem selling 2002s here. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand mm. the, yeah, whatever. Not my problem. You know, it's always the argument. But World War Two, okay, yeah. that was a long time ago. But history was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. The Germans did bad things too. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm. That's why I'm saying you can buy a 2002 because yeah. they sold here like yeah. hotcakes in the 70s, yeah. and they're all over the place. Nobody. Jap- but Japanese cars are still like, no, no. Yeah. Nobody's without sin. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we, we here at Auto Topic don't encourage that behavior, but no. we also know those people who did it are not no longer alive. Yeah. So. Um. Mazda Cosmo. Yeah, also very cool. Oh, well, so after Myron was uh, Myron was kind enough to show us around his place, and yes. we looked at a couple different cars. Do you have that a, were super before cool. we get to that car, do you have any other favorite cars in the garage? Um, oh, man. No, I think I think that car is my favorite. Okay. <laughs> well, a couple other standouts, I, I would say, was the Hoffman. That's the X8 engine car. Yeah. Which they only ever made one of. Yeah. And that car has been to Pebble Beach, and it's been in books, and it's been in museums, yeah. and it's just sitting in his garage now. But the engine is literally yeah. an X-shaped eight-cylinder engine, yeah. so it has separate cylinder heads for every two banks of cylinders. Yeah, which is you no know, shade to a common crank. Yeah, super strange, which but is cool. wild but cool. Um, there was an early '80s Mazda in that garage, a brown one that was set up for peaking to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually how I became aware of Myron because we were both bidding for that car and bring a trailer a long time ago. Right. <laughs> um, and he wound up winning it. Um, so that was kind of cool to see the car that I was trying to buy a while ago. That was brown over a brown interior. And it has like a little jacked up suspension and a big roof rack on the roof. And that was a pretty neat car. It only had like 2,000 miles on it because it wasn't actually used. It was a spare car for the Peking de Paris. Um, another cool car that I was a huge fan of was the Hino. So a rear-engined, you know company that was bought up by Toyota. They had racing cars in the 60s, and they had the Hino's, a really cool little car. But so then he, he was showing us around, and he goes, uh, he was driving the Cosmo earlier in the day on a mm-hmm. rally, and he's like, you should take this out. I'm like, uh, okay, yeah. if you insist. <laughs> if, you, if you insist we drive your really rare early Mazda yeah. rotary car, sure. Um, I mean, this thing was wild like this this is the first or one of the first production cars of the rotary other yeah. than an nsu yeah it's i'm not sure which came first but they're very close to one another it's the first mazda rotary car yeah well they're all all the engines came from wankel like it's the same same felix michael design yeah um to me it felt like it was from the 60s like kind of drove like a, drove a lot like a 60s car mm-hmm. uh it's a pretty crazy design. And a lot of very had a very British feel to it. I thought. Yep, that too. You could see where the RX-7 evolved from. Like yeah, kind of the long nose, kind of like a bubble cockpit, like a shortish deck lid. Um, and I thought uh, the Cosmo is like jet age, 
Oh, extreme. Right? And then the RX-7 is more like Star Wars with like the 70s wedge shape that was very popular at the time. Uh, Very like, I think we were like shoulder to shoulder, right? Because we're not small. I mean, yeah, we were pretty much rubbing (laughs) rubbing elbows in the car. Um, And we, I I know, I know we both had trouble getting in and out. Like you kind of, if you weren't careful, you just kind of like tumble out of it because you're so low to the ground. (laughs) So that, that particular car was a 72. Okay. So it was a. I think that makes it a series two, I think. Um, but, uh, and then like the steering wheel is actually like tilted towards the door. Yeah. It was a little weird tilt to it. Yeah. But maybe that's to help you get in and out. It's very difficult to get out of this. Car. And it, it's a giant like solid wheel yeah, and not it's a big wooden wheel. Yeah. And it doesn't have uh it doesn't have any tilt or anything. So you just kind of like slide in. And like so Mazda Cosmo was the first production two rank two rotor Wankel engine in the world, and like you're basically sitting on the floor, like the seat is on the floor. Mm-hmm. Like there's like almost no bend to your legs. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like that was also the second time I've ever driven right hand drive. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that is the oldest Japanese car I've ever driven. That's one year newer than the Galant. That car's a 72, the clown was a 71. Oh, I thought that was, yeah. I thought, I was thinking it was from the 60s. Well, the, the car, the design of the car is from the 60s. But okay. That was a later okay. model one. Okay. All right. So in my head, because it was designed earlier, that, that is the oldest feeling car I've driven. For sure. It, it definitely felt older than it is. It doesn't feel like a 72. No. Um, yeah. But it did, it did remind me of British sports cars at the time. Kind of like a, it was kind of like a Spitfire. Felt yeah, like it, low. It felt yeah. very British sports car. No question. Yeah. Except it sounded like a rotary. A rotary. It sounded it was. great, yeah. Um, and the crazy thing, too, is like American cars in that time couldn't be more far from this thing. Like, no. There was nothing like it. Like, nothing. Like, it looked like a little spaceship. It had an engine that was like totally different from every other engine. Yeah, it was. Other than like a Chrysler gas turbine. Like, I don't know what the weirder, like, You'd had like flat fours and beetles or flat sixes and Porsches, but like what else had a weird engine? Like, right? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that you could actually buy. Like nothing else had like a super strange engine like that. So. Another one of my favorites in his collection was the um, 68 Toyota Corona Coupe. Um, in particular, a 68 Toyota Corona Coupe is not the world's rarest car. But this particular one is a 1600 GT, mm-hmm. um, which has a Yamaha-designed head. Okay. And it's backed by the same transmission that's in the Toyota 2000 GT. Oh, right. You were telling me about that. Yeah. So that that's a really neat car. And mm-hmm. it's probably the only one in this country. And there's probably, it's estimated there's less than 100 of them left in the entire world. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a wild car, too. And it's a nice pale yellow coupe. It looks very unassuming because it looks like a regular Toyota Corona coupe. But then it has the heart of a much better car underneath it so that's mm-hmm. a really neat car yeah very very cool um what did you think about driving the cosmo it felt familiarly not familiar yeah um like you said i have a lot of like you said spitfire i have a lot of seat time in a spitfire because yeah. my father and a first rx7 your own your father in a spitfire and i have owned an R, a first in rx7s so just combining the two together is what it felt like yeah, I'd you say know, that. And I've always said what the Spitfire needs is a rotary engine. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, it was perfect. 
it was it was a really neat car. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see myself somehow scraping together a hundred thousand dollars and trying to buy one. Probably someday in my life. <laughs> a little terrifying to drive on today's roads, but you say that. But to me, I've driven many miles in the Spitfire and an RX-7 and a 78 Colt. And I think it's because with the Spitfire, with the top down, it didn't feel as claustrophobic. But with this thing being a fixed coupe, like, it felt very small and enclosed. Okay. So, just, I don't know. I I wouldn't drive it during, like, the week. I'd drive it on a quiet wow. weekend morning. I just... I look at uh, people I, in big SUVs worry me when you're I've, in a car. I've like said that. it's the same way. Same, I think I've said this before on air. Like I look at driving an old car the same way I look at riding a motorcycle. Exactly, you're, you're in an understood risk. Exactly. You so I would reduce that by riding off peak time, or riding or driving off peak times. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to drive it in bumper to bumper traffic on the no. mass bike, but I don't have a problem driving it every day for whatever reasons. Um, the engine in that car i was talking about the toyota is the toyota 9r it's very rare so all right very cool car speaking of engines yes conquest i don't want to to talk about that (laughs) i'm actually going to put together a listener question post i think to see what our dear listeners think i should do at this point yeah all right so you want to skip it no no i want to talk about it okay Uh, it's a project car update we did we did project car things um so quick recap car made noise we adjusted valves. Still made noise. Car still made noise. It sounds like it's in the front of the engine. Doesn't didn't sound like a crank bearing. So he said, "Well, maybe it's a timing chain or a balance chain." There's a little window on the front of the timing chain, uh, front front of the front of the timing chain cover. Yep. That you could open up and you can see the balance shaft chain to adjust it. Mm-hmm. So we're like, "All right, cool. We have to take the radiator out anyway in order to." swap in a radiator that has electric fans versus the stupid flex fan that somebody put on the car. Mm-hmm. So we pulled the radiator out of the car, pulled that cover off, and lo and behold, there was no adjuster. So in there being no adjuster, now we're like, well, that's weird. Why is there no adjuster? So we put our pea brains together and figured out that it must mean that there's no balance shafts in the car. So right. we did a balance shaft delete. So now we have to dig further. Let's take the timing cover off and see what's going on behind the timing cover. So we took a timing cover off. Saw that the balance shafts had indeed been deleted. The small chain that now drives the oil pump off the crank instead of driving the balance shafts and the oil pump has a lot of play in it. And the mechanical adjuster for the timing chain is fully extended, meaning that chain is probably pretty stretched. Yep. So... At that point, we decided, well, maybe that's our noise. So I ordered a timing chain kit. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the wonders of Amazon, we had it next day. Mm -hmm. Put the car back together. Everything's nice and tight now. The adjuster's all the way in. Right. We adjusted the chain on the oil pump so it's nice and tight as well. Mm -hmm. Fired the car up. Still making noise. Right. Knocking like crazy. Yep. So now the only thing left is going to be, it must be a crank bearing. Yeah. Doesn't still doesn't really sound like a crank bearing, but there's Weird. nothing there's nothing left that would make that kind of noise. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure I can pull the pan out of the car without pulling the engine out of the car by removing the front sway bar. So I'm going to double check online, make sure I can do that. And if that's the case, I think we may 
pull the pan down, inspect it, see if it needs a bearing. If it needs a bearing, maybe put bearings in it, put it back together and call it a day. It's weird, though, because there's no bearing material in the oil. Yeah. I think you should cut your losses and sell it now. Uh, Let somebody else deal with it. If it was your only project car, it'd be fine. But there's multiple projects in the mix here. Yeah. The project car state of the union has to happen pretty quick so you yeah. can figure out what's going on. Um, I, I, it's in, I feel like a project car counselor. My issue with that is we've gone this far. Yeah, so now's a good time to stop because we haven't spent too much time and effort into it. But pulling the pan down won't take that long either. And then if that Compared doesn't fix to what it, we've done. then it needs wrist pins. I think and if that doesn't fix it, then it needs just an engine rebuild. So I think, and here's the way I look at it. I think if we go that, because I've been saying since day one that I thought it was Rodnock. Yeah. And everybody tells me it's not. So I think that that's kind of a personal stopping point for me. I need to get to that point and see if it was my original problem. Okay. And then if it's not, then cut my losses. Because at the end of the day, if the pan is as easy to remove as it looks, and changing the rod bearings is not a huge process from the bottom of the engine, at that point, you have maybe another day's worth of work into it. Okay. And then I'll cut my losses if it doesn't fix it. I think that's probably a better stopping point than now, where it's like, I've spent all this time trying to fix it, and I have this one thing that I've kind of thought in the back of my mind since the very beginning, and it's only one day's worth of work to fix it. Mm. I think it might be worth going that one more step, I think is where I'm at. Right. Um, And then cut my losses at that point. Because the car runs great, which is why I don't think it's anything else other than that. Okay. I don't know. Whatever. The car runs really good. It pulls really strong, pulls really hard, goes really fast, nice and smooth, starts right up like it's a brand new car. Everything else about the car is, well, not perfect, but everything else about that aspect of the car is perfect. Yeah. So. Ish. (laughs) The car runs great. You can't deny that. Yeah. Car fires right up on a crank and a half. Like, it's. Yeah. It runs good. It's just not quiet. Scary noises. So I think that's going to be the issue, right? The car right now is sitting on the lift, and uh, we kind of took the day today. I was going to work on it today, and then I was like, you know what? I need to take a, take a step back and just reevaluate what's going on with the car because I do have other car projects to finish. And then while you were fiddling with that, I had the lawn over, and I just yep. went line by line like I was talking about and did all the uh, vacuum rubber lines. vacuum lines with new silicone ones and new brass fittings because I've been having problems with a couple particular lines popping off and then make the car run weird. Well, especially under the hood of a turbo car where it gets so hot. You know, plastic fittings get brittle. Rubber hoses get brittle. So the metal and silicone would probably be a much longer term solution, I hope. Oh, yes. Um, that's all I had for that. Uh, events this Saturday. Uh, Cars and Coffee at Lars Anderson. That's going to be already happened by the time this is released, though. That's right. Yeah. So next week we'll talk about cars and coffee at Lars Anderson. Oh, yeah. I won't do those. I forgot where we were with this. Yep. Ignore that event. Yeah. There's no events coming up. Although Wednesday night cruise nights behind Liberty Tree Mall, yep. the mall we made fun of last episode, Yep. Um, they do have a car show up back every Wednesday night. It's because nobody uses the parking lot. That's right. That officially started this week, so that'll be going through the rest of the summer, I think through Labor Day officially. Yeah. And then it kind of goes until weather dependent. the weather gets bad. All right. Listener questions. You want to start with yours on Facebook? Sure. So we'll, I, we'll have two on the main page. All right. Well, I posted the picture also to my page. Mm-hmm. So let me pull up those pictures right now. 
All right, a couple people, I think. So I shared the page, the picture from our Facebook page, and you put a picture of your car up, and you put a question below it. And above, so I just shared it, and I just said, what say you all? And it just shows a picture of your car. So people assumed there were no questions. But right. <laughs> so a couple people just complimented, on, complimented you on your car, Andrew. So Good. That was the whole point. Yes. I needed to inflate my ego. Um, so Tajmul TJ says, how much is too much for spending on a car? Which is a pretty open-ended question. Yeah. Um, I don't even know, man. How much is too much? How much are you comfortable with? Uh, on a new car, I don't think you need to spend more than like 30 grand. I think you're missing the point. I think it's how much are you comfortable spending? Oh, on a car? How much are you comfortable spending? Not, not, don't give me a number. Just say as much as I'm comfortable spending. Yeah. That's how much is much as it needs to happen. Yeah. How much is too much to spend? One dollar more than you can't afford. Yeah. Um, I actually like our, our friend Ryan put an answer below that. Um, X, X dollars. Yeah. Plus one. Plus one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of, kind of the answer. You solve for X. How comfortable are you spending money on a car? I had a conversation with TJ the other day, actually, because somebody was giving him a hard time for spending money on his Miata. Um, but it was like, is it their car? Is it their money? Right. Is it somebody who's your, who your decisions affect? No, no, and no? Then screw them. Do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. So then Justin came up with his question that he's asked us before, so we'll ignore that. Okay. Um, all right. Kind of a long, drawn-out question here from AJ, but I'll do my best to read it and try to okay. follow along, all right? All right. All right, AJ Vega. So, so we all know that driver enhancements in new vehicles are computer and gro- computer controlled, which means they comprise of sensors and logarithms that follow certain logic paths to control the vehicle. Right. Vehicle engineers, computer scientists create that logic and these logarithms. So, in other words, humans, like the rest of us who drive vehicles, logic and algorithms come from the human's mind the same way the choices. Same way the choices that you make as a driver to keep yourself safe on the road. If we're all going to get these enhancements shoved down our throats with these new cars flooding the market, why can't at least the people creating that logic understand the mind better than ve- create that logic understand the mind better than the vehicle engineers and computer scientists, like neurologists or psychologists? So why don't neurologists and psychologists do what he's saying? If you think about it for a second, neurologists and psychologists have much more time in their hands to figure out what vehicle engineers and computer scientists supporting a product can do. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they do have uh, neurological people working there. I'm not sure. Satire aside, satire aside the world needs more and less observ- more let me try again. I'm having a hard time reading today. Satire aside, the world needs less of the less observant and less capable type of people. How do you get through life if you can't even be bothered to turn your headlights on when it's dark out? This is true. Yeah, it's a valid point. Uh, yeah, I don't know the, yeah, it's kind of like, it's like being responsible for yourself thing. Like why in Europe, they're more, society's more like you're responsible for yourself, but yet here in America, it's like everybody needs like nanny things and why people can't be trusted to like, I mean, still, even with auto headlights, People drive down the street without their headlights on somehow. So, like, I don't know. If you're super forgetful about turning your headlights on, 
I don't know what else you're forgetful about. Like, it's a little scary that you're out driving. Yeah, for sure. So basically, he, he sums it up right here. He mm-hmm. says, I just think it's ironic that people want to take control from people and put them into computers built and fitted with controls by people. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I see So that. there's a certain irony in that. Who watches The Watchmen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, I guess, the ultimate question yeah. about life in general. Yeah. Like, how far down this rabbit hole are we going to go? You know, how much are we going to allow people to control our lives? Cause that's what it comes down to. Somebody wants to control what happens when you get in the car. Yeah, and then it comes down to, like, right to repair and what um, we were uh, – we went to that talk about Tesla's with yeah. Richard Builds was talking about like how much is the manufacturer allowed to control versus once the car is in your hands, you know, I totally feel like once, once you've purchased something, it doesn't matter what it is. You have every right to, to modify it to your liking. Like it's, it's yours. Like, so Brian made a comment, Brian Driggs on this thing. Yeah. Um, that what can we as driving enthusiasts do about that? You know, driverless electric vehicles are coming. There's just the truth. There's no stopping that it's happening. Yeah. Rather than the usual bleeding on and on about oppressive government and how everyone else is stupid, what could we be doing today to increase the demand for driving to make people want to drive? How could we make fun motoring attainable to more people so they see it more as hard parking in a parking lot and zero talent burnouts leaving cars and coffee? Well, I mean, there's a lot of companies that are doing things like uh, you look at Haggerty, they have the Drivers Club and they're, mm-hmm. they'll... There's certain times where you can go to a, a big like car show and they'll have a setup where they have uh, classic cars and they let random people come up and experience them and drive them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you could, if you could scale it up so you had like, you know, a person who has a, an amazing collection of cars, if they could somehow, you know, it's they, a single person can't afford to do this, but a company can if they can yeah. just have like a a driving experience for people to see what it's like to drive an old car and it's kind yeah. of fun every once in a while. That's why other people like it and enjoy it. I guess you need, uh, you know, you need like a, you know, basically the NRA for cars. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard, it's a hard comparison to make. But Well, it's like you need a car lobby is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like a, a driver car it's a lobby. Better, it's a better way to put it, yeah. I think. I don't I don't think it's a governmental issue yet. We were just talking about this on our own time earlier before we got to podcast recording about how we don't think there'll ever be a hard and fast, like traditional fossil fuel cars are just outlawed No, because there'll be a point where there's, there's too many people that like them, too many people that like them there. The economics of it are out of control. Um, and just like the horse used to be the main source of transportation and it was taken over by the car. But then it became so uncommon to have a horse that there was no reason to be like, all right, horses are outlawed. Yeah. So eventually, maybe it'll become so uncommon to have a fuel-powered car that it'll just be like, whatever, there's that old guy having fun with his old car, and yeah. life is good for him. Just like, oh, there's that person riding their horse, life is good for them. Yeah. They could have got out in a car, but they didn't. Yeah, it'll just, it'll probably, I mean, this is probably 50 years out, it'll just become a boutique thing. Yeah. You go to a... You go now. Now you, you, go, you, go to, you go to your fuel bar and fill up your car. Yeah. Now you go to a horse farm and you ride your horse around, yeah. or you ride trails. And in the future, you'll just take your car to your car farm and you'll, yeah. which is a racetrack, right? And you'll just like do laps around a racetrack, like it's just a a thing, like whatever. Yeah, I still think that people still want to drive them on public roads. Probably, but. I'm sure they will. 
It'll never. It'll Just never like go people away. still like to ride horses in country lanes. Yeah, it it won't go away. I don't think I have. But what people should do is get involved with the process of creating these vehicles. So you shouldn't. We shouldn't leave the creation of uh, autonomous vehicles to people who aren't into cars. Mm-hmm. You need people who are into because you need the other voice of people who are into cars and understand what what owning and driving a car means to people who enjoy it. Right. Because if you just have people that don't know about it, don't care about it, their whole goal is to eliminate cars. That's not everybody feels that way. No. Some people do, some people don't. So we need people to get into that industry and also like voice their opinion. I in. think it's a hard path to follow because if they're trying to develop an autonomous car, I don't think there's a way to make an autonomous car for an enthusiast. There isn't, but there needs to be people saying like, hey, not everybody wants this. Yeah, how, you can make your car autonomous, but don't take out the steering wheel. So I, I want to drive it myself <laughs> again. I, yeah, I don't want to give up full control to a machine. I just don't. No. Are you going to get into an, an autonomous aircraft? No. No, never. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hard that's a hard time getting an autonomous car. That's a hard sell to get into like an yeah. autonomous aircraft. Think about it that way. No, I want a human pilot. I want people who spend every day training to be pilots flying the plane. Yeah, That's what I want. I don't want a computer. I know most of the time they fly an autopilot, but there is a human sitting there. So something weird happens, they can fix it. Yeah, they can fix it. Yeah. So that's what that's for. And right. I don't mind like having... I've said it before, like, if I had a modern car and you were in stop-and-go traffic, I think Nissan has it. It's, like, some pro-pilot assist thing where it will just, like, move the car and stop-and-go traffic, which would be pretty sweet because, like, your feet, my feet get, like, sore from doing, like, stop-and-go traffic. Okay. But, like, I don't want to give up control completely. No, certainly not. All right. Before we get down too deep of a rabbit hole, let's just move on to the next question. Okay. All right. Uh, Moises Castro. Yeah. I feel that my ideas for car building are much different than the mainstream. Mm-hmm. In my younger years, I wanted high horsepower, 4G, 6.3, everything. Okay. Nowadays, I want to V6 everything with good power. I'm growing a soft spot for the 6G, which is the Mitsubishi V6. Okay. I've read Bill Hincher call it the Hemi of Mitsubishi. Although there are a few of us, I feel 6G lovers are an underdog. It's not common. Nope. Furthermore, I have read plenty of threads that people are making good power turbocharging Chrysler V6 cars, Duster Acclaim, etc. I want to turbocharge the old V the old generation V6, and I also want to build some NA 6G75 and 74 light chassis rear wheel drive cars. My list is 1G pickups, Starions, Sapporo, possibly anyone else odd like me. Honestly, tired of hearing. Why don't you drop a 4G63 in it? Well, I think like if you pulled. Uh a V6 out of a Montero, a first gen. Mm-hmm. It's only like 140 horsepower, but well, you're talking. We're talking about the later stuff, like the fourth gen Eclipse. Okay, because that's a 300 horsepower. If you can, I think they're. I think you can make them fit rear wheel drive pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Probably easier than a 4G63, because 4G63 requires some weird mounts and cooling jacket moving well, around. There's some relation to. Um, I think Bill Hincher makes an adapter for some different transmissions, yeah. but it's also a relation to the Hyundai V6, which was sold in a rear-wheel drive platform. I mean... So it, like the Genesis. There's some... some I don't think it's weird. I think... I think it's cool. I think it's I cool think to stay, go down that path. I think it's neat to stay on brand and keep, you know, the engine family in that same 
there's a bunch of mid like 2000s to mid 2000s Mitsubishis that had V6s in them that are like that are free. N- that are now in junkyards and free. Yeah. So there's tons of power plants. Yeah, you can buy like a was it a eighth gen Galant? Yeah. For like hundred and fifty dollars. And get that 6G out of there. Yeah, you might have to do something weird with the intake, put a Montero intake on it for a real drive, but... Or just build a carburetor intake right on top. Oh, you and your carburetors. <laughs> um, so I, I do know of a uh, Sapporo Challenger chassis um, that's getting a 6G put in it. Yeah. With a... Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time since I've thought about this car. Um, I think it's getting a 350Z 6-speed. Okay. Or 5-speed. What do those have? 6-speeds, yeah. right? 6-speeds. Yeah. So it's getting a 350Z six-speed. Um, so that's uh, his internet name is Old Colt. Uh, his name is Charlie. He lives in Vermont. I'm sure you know him, Moises, but look him up. He's in the process of building one of those. Um, I really, however, like your idea of a first-gen Mighty Max Ram 50 with that V6 in it. That's that sounds like it could be fun. Oh, you know what are great with V6s? Two-door Raiders. Just saying. Yeah, well, as the owner of a broken four-cylinder one, I'm not swapping a V6 into that truck because it's not worth it. <laughs> Just because it's not nice. <laughs> All right, next question. Next question from Brian Driggs. He follows up his own question by saying, you guys got to read every word of everyone's questions, by the way. So bear with me as I read the book that he wrote us. Oh, boy. All right, Brian Driggs. You guys have talked a lot about Starions increasing in value, which we have to go back to afterwards. Right. Um, from a collector standpoint. Right. Have you ever taken a step back and compared how the dates, model years, timelines align to those of big ticket collector cars? Like when did the most valuable muscle cars hit the market? When did they start appreciating? When did values take off? How old were the people that bought them new? Who buys them now? Does that line up with the Starion thing at all? And if so, what do you think it means for other storied Mitsubishis? Could the Galant VR4 be next? Yes. The DSM? Early Evos? What about their contemporaries, you know? I feel like I should mention the delicate star wagon prices today, but I also feel like that is simply opportunistic middlemen cashing in on supply and demand. To that end, do you think we'll see delicate prices cool or stay where they are in the twelve to $17,000 price or increase? Um, I've never looked at the hard data. I know it probably exists somewhere. I'm sure people pay attention to it. I look at it from my own, like, quick analysis in my brain, and it's 30 years. Yeah, it's roughly 30 years. It yeah. makes sense. It's like, it's so a cool. a 67 GTO yeah. in 1997 yeah. was when they started going stratospheric. Yes. 10 years later, 2007, they started cooling off a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the whole market cooled they, off a little bit of the economy down. then. Yeah. Um, but I think where they're at now is where they're going to stay. Because they've gone past the level of... Because the 30-year mark is the... I remember this car when I was a kid. I wanted to buy one then. I either A, wasn't old enough, or B, didn't have the money. Yeah. So say you were 10 years old and your neighbor came home in 1987 with a brand new Starion. Yep. 30 years later, you're 40 years old, and you're like, man, I want that perfect Starion again. And there's... 15 other 30 or 40-year-olds that also want that, you're all going to bid on it, and you're going to bring the price up. Yeah. So I think that's the same across the board. And then I you get to a point where there's only a finite lev- level of them. There's only so many left. And then they'll just stay. Yeah. And then you have the history of the car. Hey, this guy bought this car for $31,000. Yeah. So when I buy it from him, I'm going to expect to pay 
$31,000 or more, but probably not less. They might go down a little bit, but I think I think your baseline now for a, a really nice clean stock Starion is going to be 10 to 12 grand. Yeah. Yeah, for a car with mileage. Yeah. A car with mileage and repair history has got to be 10 to 12 grand. Yeah. Um, and I say mileage, I mean, you know, 100, 125,000 yep. miles. Yeah. That's going to be a $10,000 car very yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, in my history, when those cars were 20 years old, when I was buying them regularly, yeah, a 75,000 mile car was a $4,000 car. Yeah. So I can see that being an issue. I can see that being a thing. I can see that swinging in that direction. Absolutely. Um, I think the Glant VR4 is already on the way. And we've already seen some low mile examples trade in the mid teens, right? Um, which is right there, you know. And they're three years newer than these these Starians that are selling. So we have another couple of years before we start seeing them yeah. go stratospheric. Maybe I think they're going to go up there. I think that cars like your car, Andrew, are going to be a twenty thousand dollar car not that long from now. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I, you're you, <laughs> you discredit your car, but you have one of the cleanest ones around. I mean, there's no question. Um, it's not a 40,000 mile all original car, so it's not going to be that $25,000, $30,000 car, but it'll be a $20,000 car. We're, we're using Mitsubishi's, but uh, this this Brian, really goes Brian, for... Yeah, Brian asked about Mitsubishi's. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I talked about Mitsubishi. This goes for really any any car, any collectible enthusiast car. 30 to 50 years is where the prices start going up, 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 up. Yeah. That's just where it works. And the Starians right now Fox are, bodies. Yeah, they're the same the same boat. They're also the same era. Mm-hmm. You know, peak Fox body was 87 through 90. Right. Which is 30 years ago. Yeah. So. So even like composite headlight cars are yeah really getting expensive now. Yeah. And more so than the early cars sometimes. Yeah. And I think even you'll get like super low mileage ones will be very expensive, but like a nice one, I think now, even now are like 10 to 12 grand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When they were $2,000 all day long. Yeah. So. I think smart money right now buys a, going back to Mustangs, buys a 90,000 mile, um, 90 to 110,000 mile, 95 to 99, must not, no, it was an S and 95 stop, 98. I think so. So 94, 98, before they went New Edge, 99. Yeah, yeah. So a 94, 98 Mustang. I think smart money right now buys one of those because they're sub five grand for. A GT for a decent GT. Yeah. Cobra's gonna be a little bit more, but yep. you, you can buy a nice say say five thousand dollars for a nice GT. It's basically the same car. You you park in that money and it's only gonna go. If up. you can get over the bubble era Ford styling, yep. And I don't mean like bubble economy Ford. I mean like their style the car looks like a bubble. Was yeah. <laughs> everything was a bubble? No, nope. yeah, there was not one straight edge in Ford's yeah. design studio from like yeah. nineteen ninety four until two thousand and five. Well, that's so. why in ninety nine they went to New Edge because everything in their lineup had edges. Yeah. So, so, all right. So, from 1993 until 1999, there was not a straight edge in their studio. But we actually drove an SN95 Mustang this weekend, just a V6 car. And we were just commenting about how inside the car just feels like a different era now because it is. That car is 25 years old. It was designed 30 years ago. And it's just, it's dated. It feels like an older car. And they're going to start appreciating. I mean, this particular car we drove was a six cylinder car. It wasn't a GTE or a, a Cobra or anything, but. Just the general feel of the car. I think that that's smart money. Not right buy smart money right now buys a clean one of those. Yep. So just looking at what's happened with box bodies. All right. Uh, moving on to the end of his question about the Delicas. Yeah. Um, I oh I think like you said this to me the other day. So people who couldn't afford Vanigans anymore were right. buying Delicas, and now I think that's going to drive the price up too. <laughs> I think right now the market is saturated. 
Yeah. Because so many people got on this. They saw they could buy them for sub 10 grand in Japan and sell them for 15 grand here and make a tidy three or $4,000 profit without yeah. turning a wrench, which is slightly frustrating, but that's what people did. Um, so I think right now the market is saturated. I think that so many people are buying those that aren't car people that a lot of the ones that are being sold here are just going to get driven into the ground and thrown away. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. And once that happens, I think the price is going to go up a little more. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be Vanagon prices ever because they're not Vanagons. Um, I, I think they will be. Well, maybe, but I, I don't think so. Um, but I think that... We the, shall see. I think the, a clean Delica four-wheel drive, early manual transmission, you know, with the crystal light roof and the factory karaoke system <laughs> yeah. will be a $25,000 yeah. vehicle. Soon. Charmineau. Yeah. I think it'll be a $25,000 car or truck or van or whatever you want to call it probably pretty soon. Yep. So, yeah, I I, I don't I don't not see that. Mhm. Yeah. So. All right. Next question. I have no more on my page. All right. Move on. We'll go on to it's on our Facebook page and the Auto Topic page. Jesse Eldridge. This is a very local question. Does Route 128, which is 95 around Boston, always feel like you're in the lead draft at Talladega, or was I there in a bad day? This was not a road meant to be doing 80 in a tight pack of cars. Yeah, well, that's um, that's the way it goes. Get on our level, man. Yeah, that's how it happens every <laughs> single day. I know the uh, the road is uh, it's like four lanes wide in some points and only like 55 mile an hour speed limit, but people do 80 plus, and I mean within car lengths of each other. So yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah, you were there in a. It's uh, it's like restrictor racing out there. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, they'll be and, and when they wreck, it's the big one. Oh yeah, every time. Yeah, <laughs> the whole road will be like yeah, the whole side. One twenty eight north closed. Yeah, yeah. All right, Steve Booten. What was your first hard lesson learned when working on a car? Injuries, incorrect insulation, leading to breaking something, going cheap when you should uh, when you shouldn't have. You have anything off the top of your head? I mean, before when I was a young teenager first started driving yeah um i bought a junkyard transmission yeah and spent all that time well actually full honestly i didn't spend any time i spent time like finding it buying it getting it and then working a job to pay for working it. a job to pay for it and i had a mechanic do the install for me yeah um went through the whole thing got the car put together and had no reverse oh so you put it in the lift installed everything Ran it into, put it in drive, wash it, shift with the gears, put it in park, put it in the ground, put it in reverse to pull out of the bay, and nothing. Oh, yeah. Remember that in the cutlass? Yeah. Yeah. So my lesson learned there was don't buy big ticket used parts for all the money when you don't have a warranty on them. Right. Because that was all on me. Uh, one of the dumbest things I've done, uh, I was putting together a lot engine, and uh, I bought a B blaster from Harbor Freight. Mm. Those ones work really well. So I was getting all excited. I was doing all the different parts, and I did the feed line for the turbo. I yes. cleaned it up, and then didn't clean it out. Right. Painted it, installed it. I put oil in the engine for some reason. What was on the? This is all what was on the stand. Yeah. Don't remember why exactly I did. You this. put oil in it to break it to just to do a break the breaking period on it. On the stand, you were just like, gonna, you, were, you were just you were turning. I was gonna prime you, it. Or you're something. turning it to prime the oil pump and make sure oil was going where it's supposed to go. And it pushed all that bead into the turbo. Yeah, it didn't get anywhere else. And then for some reason, like I went to turn the turbo and it didn't want to turn. Yes. 
So I completely ruined a nice used 14B. Right. And had to buy another one. That was really annoying. Yeah, it was really yeah, annoying. It, the center section is sitting over here on the oh, shelf. Right next to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Andrew and I have both been very lucky to have good car mentors in our life to kind of stray us away from a lot of mistakes that a lot of young enthusiasts made. You know, Andrew's father is a master tech. Yeah. So that helps a lot. My dad's been around cars his whole entire life. Yeah. Um, and that helped us kind of avoid some of the pitfalls of... I just wasn't thinking when I cleaned that part and didn't clean it out. Yeah. It's weird. Like, bead blasters work great. Yeah. And it, like, I used it to clean up... Every other like, part of the engine. intercooler right? parts, because the tubes are huge, so mm-hmm. all this stuff just got blown out. And then this is just a little small feed tube. And I just, oh, I remember a big mistake I made. Yeah. Um, I got a free 87 Volkswagen yeah. GTI 16 valve. Yeah. And I needed to pull the head off of it. Right. So I drained the oil out of the car. And then I was like, all right, time to pull the head off. And I was in a friend's driveway, which his parents did not appreciate this. Um, and I pulled the head off, and as I pulled the head off, I forgot that there was going to be coolant inside the engine. Actually, no, I didn't drain the oil, so it's coolant and coolant and oh, oil. Awesome. Yes. So the second I released the head from the block, it just dumped coolant and oil all over his driveway. So that was probably my first real car error, I would say, which... Pretty much ticked off the owners of the house whose driveway I did it in. <laughs> but, yeah. Other than that, there haven't been too many dumb, dumb decisions. I mean, other than buying the cars that I buy. That's probably my biggest problem. Not buying the right car. Just letting emotions emotions dictate what I do with cars. That's probably my biggest mistake. Yep. Not getting rid of things when I should. Mm-hmm. Carrying on too far when I shouldn't. Like Greg Parring's in a Conquest. Um trying to fix rust in 84 starion all those things are, yep. are dumb moves that i make but all right moving on uh and this kind of we kind of covered this earlier but i'll acknowledge uh, this question uh, we're going to instagram paul's finest hour after driving a few right-hand drive cars this past week what are your impressions so we kind of went over that earlier uh could a right-hand drive car serve as a daily i think so we both said yep yeah for sure and how long do you think it would uh, take to become normal to drive? Not that long. Probably no. Once you realize you don't want to drive to the other side of the road? I think the hardest part about driving a right-hand drive car in a left-hand drive world is making left-hand turns across traffic. Um, only because if somebody is in the lane... Exactly. To, if somebody's coming in the opposite direction in the right-hand lane, you can't see them from the right-hand side of the car in the opposite the opposite lane. Other than that, that's probably the... Just avoid, avoid right turns across traffic. All right. Um... <clears throat> Fugarab, any Isuzu love? In Mitsubishi is much maligned, then Isuzu is much ignored. Fully boxed frames, super sturdy axles, they just never had the upmarket options like factory lockers, but otherwise Isuzu 4x4s keep up. Yeah, no, I'm down with Isuzus. Yeah. I uh, just, they never they were never common around here. They're very, and they're, they just don't exist here in the Northeast. They, yeah, there's a few. I saw a really, really, really nice trooper two days ago. Yeah, uh, first gen trooper, yeah. two to a first gen trooper, but which must have come from a different part yeah. of the country. If Mitsubishi's weren't good with rust, then Isuzu's were, were worse. Yeah. Worse. Um, yeah, I, I have no issue with them. I've always liked the. Uh, I've always had a soft spot for the Chevy Love Isuzu Pup. Yeah, the early early Isuzu pickup. Um, 
Yeah, I, I like Isuzu's. I really like their oddball cars, too. You know, Piazzas and uh, iMarks. And their early just, stuff, the stuff from the 60s and 70s, is really cool. Yeah, they had some really, really, really neat stuff. Yeah. And even in the 80s, when they had the, you know, iMarks sedan with a twin cam engine and the handling by Lotus. Mm. You know, that was that was really cool. All right. Uh, Escudera Boracua. Nope. I don't even know anymore. I, I can't. He corrects Pe- us all the time. People say it to me, and I can't hear giant it. giant jerks. Uh, any plans to spectate some rallies out west? Yes. Yeah. Beyond. Beyond spectate. Uh, assuming Prescott runs, you're planning on going, I think. I'll be at Prescott. Um, Maybe. Uh, it depends what weekend it is. I think I looked into it. There's nothing else going on that weekend. Okay. I think. I'll have to double check. It's usually the first weekend in October. Yeah. Last year they didn't have they didn't have enough entries. They canceled it. Right. So, uh, so uh, former question asker Brian Driggs. Yeah. Um, goes every year or yeah. tries to go every year, yeah. uh, and he's involved with some of the organizational crew out there. And we've already been once before. Yeah. So I'll probably wind up volunteering with him. Yeah. So it's I'll be, pretty cool. I'll be more than spectating. I'll be hanging out and doing things and helping out. So I'll be there yeah. for sure. And I know there'll be some California Rally Series stuff that I've already been invited to by some other listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be out there for that too. Flave247, I was wrong. The $5 Craigslist free uh, fee killed cheap cars in Craigslist. What happens now? It definitely did. I've, I've checked out Craigslist last... Uh, like, all dealerships. Yeah, a couple times over the last like two weeks just to see what was up with it, and it definitely killed it. Yeah. But I have noticed I've gone to Facebook. There's more people posting on Facebook. Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's moving to Facebook. Unfortunately. Yeah, um, but the interface definitely was... It's been updated yeah. where you can search... By city, you can search within distance of where you are. Um, you can search by year. It does have some drop-downs for that. It looks more like a fancier version of Craigslist. I also wonder if Craigslist will slowly start to come back as people start to forget that it was free. Yeah, maybe. I think that will be something. Like Right now, they're just angry. Yeah. you know, And then they'll be like, wait, $5 is not that much for how convenient it was. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like... The eight hundred dollar car, you're gonna have to find it on Facebook. I mean, I have no problem spending five dollars trying to make eight hundred. If you don't, then you, you're just a cheap prick. You don't. I don't think anybody should. But the people that we've dealt with buying eight hundred dollar cars, it's true. Yeah. All right. Well, I think the problem is they don't have a credit card. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have any way. To, they don't have any way to pay the five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> they fold a five dollar bill up and mail it to Craigslist yeah. home office. <laughs> All right. This one's for you. Live and let diecast. Driving the Sapporo across the Bering Strait to go to Radwood in Japan next month? I wish. Go find the land bridge? Yeah, that would be amazing. But unfortunately, I will not be attending Radwood, Japan. That is far out of budget right now. going to ship it? Um, even if I was going, I certainly would not be bringing the car. Yeah, FedEx the car? Um, I'd be buying a car there and bringing it home afterwards if I was going to go. Um, if I wasn't in the middle of packing up to move... To the other side of the country. It's just maybe. further west. It's so far, far, It's so much further west, you'll just end up being east again. Right. Yes, I have to go far west to go far east. Yeah. Um, maybe if I wasn't moving across country next month, I would probably um, consider taking a week and going over there. But it's certainly not in the budget with a cross-country move coming up. I have to be a little more uh, cost-conscious, I guess you could say. It's also uh, on the day of a wedding. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, that's not important to the podcast listening audience, but well, I, the real reason I'm not going is obviously because of my friend's wedding. Mm-hmm. 
not because I can't afford a off the whim trip a month out of with a month notice to Japan. <laughs> sure. Sure. Something like that. No, I definitely could not afford to go to Japan. All right. That's all the questions we have. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Auto Off Topic Podcast, Auto Off Topic on Instagram, Race and Anger on Instagram. Brad, where can they find you? Oh, at the Instagram title of TSISS350. Awesome. Not Brad's finest hour. Sorry, Paul. Nope. Long range Brad? Not long range Brad either. All right. All right. Um, as always, keep cars analog and aim for the roses.